It's the Magic Book Club with Benson's for Beds. Hello and welcome to a very special edition of the Magic Book Club podcast. I'm Emma B. Ten points. Well done, you are. I'm Tom Price. Thank you. Thank you. Hello. Oh, well done. Yes. We got that bit right. It's ten all. <laughs> uh, and today, that's the last thing I'll get factually correct throughout the podcast. Uh, today, we are taking a look back on the year of Magic Book Club podcasts. I don't know about you, Tom. I've had the best. I mean, in terms of books, I've had a great year. It's been amazing. Um, and in amongst all this crazy stuff that's been going on, pandemics, process, uh, protests, elections, blah, blah, it, you mm. know, to have been able to read such incredible literature and fiction and non-fiction in amongst this time has been a huge saviour. Helping us escape. I like the way you said the B word very yeah. quickly. Brexit, very, very quickly. Just so <laughs> we're technically not bringing it up. But I know what you mean. Throughout all the, the, the hard stuff that's been going on in the news and the, the real life, uh, and these books yeah. have been such a comfort to keep us sane, I reckon. Absolutely. So sit back then. Are you comfortable? Because for the next half an hour, we're going to take you through some of our best books of the year. So cast your minds back to February, everyone. Can we do that? What, 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 know, what? what? This is where we need a harp sound effect. Snow was on the ground, possibly somewhere. Uh, there were stirrings of something in the air. There was sort of like second or third article on the news, but, you know, it wasn't really going to change the world, was it? Well, let's not, let's not dwell on that. Anyway, talking of February, which I can barely remember, one thing that sticks in my memory was interviewing the brilliant Michael Cashman. Now, you probably know him best, and he's kind of fine with this, as Colin from EastEnders. You remember Colin from EastEnders, right? In in the 80s and yeah. 90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely superb actor who went on to then uh, have a career in politics, an incredible activist, a very, very, very inspiring man. And uh, I got to meet him, which was, was wonderful. Uh, he had a book out, The Story of His Life. And this is a, a nice intro into the book club, throwing it way back to February with some showbiz action uh, where we find <laughs> Michael Cashman talking about what life was like back then and mentioning one Elizabeth Taylor. Have a listen to this. I had wonderful, wonderful parts and you know, working with Elizabeth Taylor, that wonderful film I did uh, with her. And, and it was only, it was a very small cast of uh, Michael Caine, Susanna York, John Standing, Elizabeth Taylor, Ma- Margaret Layton. And, um, and I just had one week on the film uh, and uh, this very important scene with Elizabeth. And, 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 I, and I said, I wanted a photograph taken with her. And they said, everyone said, no, not, not possible. Absolutely not possible. <laughs> not with Elizabeth. And on the last day I plucked up and I said, I said, Miss Taylor, could I have um, Elizabeth? Because she liked you to call it. Her, Elizabeth, could I have a photograph taken with you? And she went, oh, sure. Well, let's do it on your last day. I said, well, today is my last day. And, and they just called a wrap, which, as you know, the, it's the, the day when the studio the, closes down that day, all the lights are off. Very tightly regulated Very well. tightly regulated, because, it. because otherwise it's money. Mm. And Elizabeth Taylor just turned around and went, let's have some lights around here. <laughs> and somebody said, what? She said, I want the lights on. And so somebody went, put the lights on, put... And then somebody else said, who's turning the lights on? It's Elizabeth. Elizabeth wants to get the lights on, get the lights on. We had our photographs taken. And then off she went. She pecked me on the cheek. Off she floated. And only Elizabeth Taylor could cost a studio thousands and thousands of dollars by having a photograph taken 
for me. And it's a and the photos in the book, and it's it's a lovely photograph for no other reason that it proves that once upon a time I did have long curly hair. <laughs> there it was. There it was. Well, you both look beautiful in that photograph. Oh, he's <laughs> so ace. So ace. Such a beautiful guy. And you know, this guy was an actor with with an incredible career behind him already, as told in that story. But then went on to become an MEP. He was the co-founder of Stonewall. He's a really important, significant guy. Yeah. And I didn't know, and I think that's one of been that's one of the uh, really fun things about talking uh, to people about biographies or you know their nonfiction mm. work. Uh, you know, you you find out so much about them that you didn't know. But even though they live their life in the limelight or you know in a in public positions of public profile, you know, like like Michael has done, there are still these absolute gems of stories that they tell so well. And because of his, his acting background, he delivers them brilliantly. And it was must have been amazing to sit there and hear that for. Uh, for you. Yes, it was. It was brilliant. And he'd stop a story and I didn't have any follow up questions because, you know, let, letting, <laughs> let's let people know the truth about interviewing is that towards the end of a story, any interviewer starts to think, right, what's my next question? And several times he was telling a story and he gets to the end and I go, oh, sorry. Uh, I don't know what to say next. Uh, Michael Cashman, one of them, is a, a really great book and uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed meeting him. What a top guy. So one of the things that we do, don't we, when we speak to uh, the authors that we that we get to speak to is find out about what gets them to put pen to paper. And sometimes uh, they talk at length about their quite unconventional methods behind book writing because everybody has their own way. Everybody's got their own way of approaching, writing, thinking about anything. Uh, but when you've got a great big plot to sort of sort out, uh, there were there several very different approaches that we heard about over the year. And a few months ago, I got to catch up with the lovely Dolly Alderton and her new book, Ghosts. Um, and Dolly, I mean, I was really honest about this, I think, before. is I just didn't expect to like this as... I did expect to like but not as much as I did. Mm. Um, ghosts refers to the art, <laughs> the the terrible affliction mm. of ghosting, um, but it's also a bit more complicated like that. And, and it follows a it follows a young a young adult um, uh, who, you know, is going through the trauma of, of dating in this hideous online world. Anyway, but the her, her characters are amazing. Um it's it's very of its time obviously if you're a millennial you will sympathize massively and have yes. every understanding about what as a millennial uh, yes what, i get that sure sure yeah, yeah. right okay like about 10 years past that babes come on yeah you get channel four um, plus one I'm millennial <laughs> plus 10 that's what i am <laughs> And she came in to talk, and of course, she's got a journalist background, and she was a, an agony aunt as well. So she has this like vast, you know, history of of people and their stories. And so she writes with great knowledge and great understanding and empathy. Um, but the way that she, well, that look, I mean, well, have a listen to this because this is about how she just approaches the the, the hard job mm. of plot writing. So I'm a meticulous and bizarrely ordered planner in a way that I have never ever seen in another writer and I'm worried makes me actually not that, that creative like every time I try and explain the system to another writer they're just like that sounds mad so with Ghosts I did three months every day just planning um goodness had, wow yeah I'm so like I would not be able to write without a plan um and we, I've always done that with my journalism as well. And um, I do, so I, I kind of divided the, the story into five plots. This is when I'm going to start to sound crazy. So it's, <laughs> you know, they were colour-coded plots. Oh and my then God. I, 
Yeah, this is mad. And it basically, if the higher it was on the plot list, so if it's the A story, then that's the one that you would need most of. And then the lower, the lower kind of rung stories were the funniest stories or the stories that didn't have as much importance with propelling the plot forward, that were more like textural plots. I then, when I did these huge planning documents, would have every beat of the story would be in a certain would be in the color so when i looked and then i printed them all out you would not believe the amount of money that i spent at the printing shop in camden (laughs) when i printed them all out i would be able to see from a bird's eye view when i looked down if there was too much so let's say the d story is purple if there's too much purple in part two then it means i've done something wrong because there should only be a little light sprinkling of purple Goodness me. I know, right? I know. meticulous, but also very mathematical, isn't it? Well, and I think that's what, because I remember speaking to, we had the great pleasure this year of speaking to Anthony Horowitz about the Moonflower murders, Mm. uh, which was a follow-up to the Magpie murders, which is a murder um, within a murder. And this is going back to the murder before that and reflecting on, I I, I mean, literally, it's so complicated, I can't even explain it, (laughs) to write it. Mm. But especially with some of these crime fiction authors or, you know, complicated friendship relationship um, books that, you know, that sort of span many, many years, your plot it has to be everything and and uh, Anthony Horowitz said to us that he had you know walls covered in the old school bits of string going from the church to the post office um you know and and he would sometimes get up and walk through in his head the corridors you know if he was saying if something happened at the end of a corridor and it was to the left that he would walk it through in his head to you know to be absolutely and it's it's it is absolutely incredible to delve into the mind of these guys and probably explains why when I just sit there with a piece of paper go oh I'm going to write a story today <laughs> it doesn't happen <laughs> it's absolutely astonishing isn't it there, there did you ever read um the seven deaths of evelyn hardcastle by stuart turton that was a s- similar sort no, of no but i've heard about it. it's on the list uh, okay yeah. it's on the list read, read that and that will blow your mind as well but what's really interesting when we talk to all these authors is is hearing how they they're either meticulous planners like that or they're they're seat of panthers and we this is a thing regular listeners to the show will know the panthers and and lee child is a good example although he's handed the reins to his brother this year but lee child sits down writes a sentence you know the guy was stuck in the underground car park or whatever he has no idea what's happening next he has no idea what's happening next are you serious i didn't know that wow wow that's amazing anyway we must move on Uh, it's been a year of reading and it's also been a year of baking (laughs) (laughs) we all started with such enthusiasm didn't we we started with such enthusiasm what can i say um you know and yes we i mean i don't know why we ever thought we were all going to run out of bread but there you go we did we tried all sorts of things um i i started growing my own vegetables i was like that i'm gonna grow my way out of this crisis kids you're never gonna starve don't worry there'll always be a lettuce in the garden (laughs) uh but we you know, I guess what was good about this is that we were all inward looking a little bit more. Um, we went back to try and discover old skills. And how could we forget when the nation's baking sweetheart Nadia won the Great British Bake Off all those years ago and she did the same thing. And of course, she's been baking up a storm ever since. And she came in to talk about her new book, which took her back to her baking roots. And also, um, I think if you've ever tried any of Nadia's recipes, and I have uh, several times, when you kind of just go, so you, hang on a second, you want me to put the salted caramel 
in the baked potato. Um, <laughs> I love that. It, she, uh, but it is true. And then she'll kind of, there's a cake on a cake on a cake or there'll be a sausage roll in. And it's just one of those, she's like got this incredible imagination. Yeah. And it would appear uh, that that's when she has all her best ideas. Where do these recipes start, Nadia? I mean, uh, you know, you, you seem to have, you're so sort of, there seem to be this sort of endless creative ideas coming from your, uh, your big baking brain. Where do they start? Where do these recipes start? Some of my most kind of outrageous ideas come to me in the middle of the night. So I will think something up or I will eat something and think, oh, that'd be a bit nice if it was a little bit different. And I'm one of those people, I am those annoying people that go to restaurants and think I eat it. And you can see me going, trying to taste what's in there. And so I'm trying to work stuff out. And and my husband does, sometimes he has to tell me, he's like, you can, you can turn it off now. You don't have to be working. And I'm like, oh, but let me just quickly put a little note in my phone. And so I, I'm constantly, it's always, and it's a part of, I suppose, how I was made and this is who I am. And it's just, I'm always trying to recreate different things. But some of my best ideas come to me in the middle of the night. And problem with getting those ideas in the middle of the night is that if I don't write them down, um, yeah. Sometimes, sometimes writing them down doesn't suffice. I have to get up and make it. So I push it for as long as I can, and I, I, I might wake up at rather than six. I might wake up at five and start slowly, like measuring out ingredients and pottering around <laughs> to try and get this thing in the oven. And my husband's just like, "Just stop. Go back to bed." <laughs> and I just, I won't, I won't do it. Sometimes, it, yeah, some of my best ideas come to me in the middle of the night, like chicken donuts. Come on. Oh, my goodness me, of course. Well, I mean, you'd have to be in some kind of dream state to think of that, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, I often get asked uh, if I um, if I um, re- write my recipes drunk and I say, I don't even drink. <laughs> no, I don't even drink. Not. <laughs> I mean, imagine if I was drunk, imagine the recipes <laughs> I'd then get, you know, imagine the recipes I'd create then. Like these You're are drunk. non-drunk recipes. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a recipe book, doesn't it? Non-drunk recipe. <laughs> yeah. But she's like, literally, she is as gorgeous as you totally expect her to be. Mm. Um, and, you know, and it was what was really interesting about this book as well is that's how we, you know, we came to introduce ourselves. We came to meet her through Bake Off. But did you know, baking really wasn't part of her family at all. She didn't, the, the kitchen was very busy, right. but it wasn't, baking wasn't part of her Indian culinary life. So how did she get into um, it? Then? And so... She just got into it, and and but this is where I think she's she's still so sort of inspired by it. She's been given all the skills through just you know being in the kitchen and ingredients and flavors. But this is you always feel with Nadia that this is as exciting for her as it is for us. Do you know? Yeah, what I she's mean? got that brilliant thing. Whenever she's on camera, she just looks right down the barrel, and you know she's yes. she's got such a good connection with her audience, and you get that she's talking to you, and you think she's just sort of snuck up next to you and said, "Chicken donuts, let's do this." Like there's just I, you buy it. I was I felt a lot like that when you look straight down the camera with your bake-off challenge that oh, we did during uh, yeah. listen you, you nailed it I, what are you talking about you nailed that you didn't go <laughs> off and just mess around that was considered and professional it, and competitive it took me hours well i am i'm certainly one of those <laughs> things that you just listed off uh, uh competitive definitely not considered definitely not professional as well you know emma um but i i really wanted to do something different because i found recently that i am we're, we're sort of we're falling back into horrible gender stereotypes in our house. My wife is doing all the cooking and baking and I'm not. And I don't like that And I because I love cooking, but it just seems to be happening that way. And I wanted the kids to see me baking and to see that dads get in the kitchen and do all sorts of stuff. And I had a tremendous amount of fun, but my goodness, the mess we made. It was just <laughs> appalling. There was like just sugar and flour. And, and I made that stuff. What's the stuff in the middle of crunchies? What's the yellow stuff in the middle of crunchies called? Honeycomb. Yeah, I made honeycomb. Yeah, you did. 
It's like a chemistry experiment. Have you ever made it? Yeah, it's brilliant fun. You put the uh, you end up put, when you put the bi- the bicarbonate of soda in it, yeah. it just goes. You're like, whoa! Yeah, yeah, yeah. We should do this every day. <laughs> I know it's incredible, uh, and also brilliant. If you need to fill your teeth with uh, sugar, get some honeycomb in your life. It's <laughs> really worked wonders there. <laughs> Uh, so obviously this year uh, has been tough and not just for my dentist. Um, it's not all doom and gloom, though, because humans have continued to advance into space. I feel like there should be an echo there. Space, space, space. space. And perhaps beyond. Do you remember? Beyond. The, thank you. Do you remember the SpaceX launch in November? Absolutely amazing. It was nuts, wasn't it? It was crazy because you just, it, you, there was a huge big fuss about it. But you, I think it's been so long since something like that happened mm. that you kind of go, what, really? Really? Yeah. And then we were watching it dock with millimetre precision. Yeah. Um, my, thousands and thousands of miles away from Earth. It, and, Incredible. You know, a private rocket crazy. launched into space. Off it goes and, and syncing up with... Uh, the space station and what was brilliant was that we could all watch it from earth you could see there was this fantastic stuff especially with twitter and everything people would say to you right you need to look southwest at 9 43 p.m or whatever which for me and beth meant staying up and uh looking into the night sky and seeing that star that was moving and thinking that is a human thing that a man's private company has sent into space and that is amazing and that is what space is all about that moment of inspiration the power of what people can do And I'm not going to forget talking to real-life space journalist Sarah Crudus in a hurry. We talked about all sorts. I I posed all my questions that I've had about space since I was about six (laughs) years old to her. Uh, And also, she provided some excellent Mars gossip. Do you know, I think the thing with Mars is it almost feels like science fiction. So I um, I was born in the 80s, so I'm a child of the 90s. And I remember thinking, well, I was told that 2020 was the year that humans were going to walk on Mars. And I remember thinking, wow, 2020 is a long way away. <laughs> um, but it, it was. So I always grew up believing 2020. And a lot of like space is cool now. It wasn't cool um, to be <laughs> in the 90s to like space or the early noughties. But it, it's cool. It's got a bit of a resurgence now, which I love. But 2020 was the year we were meant to go to Mars. And actually, if you go further back during Apollo, um, if we'd have carried on with the same momentum of Apollo, and I talk about this in the book, Werner von Braun, who, of course, built the the rocket, the Saturn V, which took humans to the moon, he he was convinced... uh, we had the technology to get humans to Mars by the 1980s. And if right. we'd carried on with the same rate, it, it's laughable now, but think how laughable landing on the moon is. If we'd have carried on at the same rate as Apollo, yeah. we would have seen humans on the moon, on Mars sorry, by the 1980s. Imagine where we would be by now if Exactly, we'd done that. exactly. Oh, and now we think we would have been by 2020, but instead we got the space age we live in today and space became about using space to benefit life on Earth. So actually, you know, we, we talk about Mars and, it's kind of difficult to put the number on. I like to say that um, our Mars walkers walk among us. The first human being to walk on Mars is most likely alive right now. They're most likely a child. So they're probably in either primary school or early secondary school. So if anyone listening to this oh has got gosh. a child, they could be the first human being to walk on Mars. And I think what space teaches us is that nothing's impossible. And it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from, you can achieve those dreams. So Within the next 20 to 30 years, we will see humans on Mars, which I know sounds like science fiction. We've got to return to the moon first, but change is happening much faster than you realise. Oh, it's good, isn't it? I don't know what to say. I'm so excited. (laughs) Did you go home immediately after that interview and start measuring thunder and lightning up for spacesuits? I was talking to the kids within (laughs) seconds. The kids were downstairs. I nearly, because I recorded from home, I nearly shouted to them, come here, boys! 
Come all the way up here and then keep going till you get to Mars. Thank you. Um, it is that sort of inspiration. She's amazing. Yes. She's amazing. She knows everything. You need that enthusiasm and you need to, you know, you need to overcome that defeatism and, and think about what science can get us. And now, in fact, when we were recording that, we were in the midst of the pandemic. And here we are now with vaccines everywhere. And you see the power of science and research and facts and talking to her mixed in that, that childish glee, that joyful enthusiasm about science with what it can do for us. And it was a... It it was an intoxicating combination. I loved chatting to Sarah. Absolutely brilliant. So uh, as we get to the end of the year, you we all start making resolutions, mm-hmm. yours being, I'm going to go to Mars. Yeah, well, um, I'm going to try. I've, I've uh, made a crunchy, pro- so now I'm going to go try- to Mars. Done. Well, brilliant. I mean, you know, you've got to start somewhere. That's progress. Uh, making promises to themselves. Uh, you know, lots of people talking a big game. I'm, yeah, I mean, I think I'm definitely, I've been just toying with the idea of trying to run. <laughs> Like, but you know what I mean. Good. And I'm going to get through. I'm going to. I'm going to read more. I'm going to do more crosswords. I'm going to, you know, increase my vocabulary. I'm going to be not so grumpy. All that kind of thing. Um. Uh, but you didn't. We, you didn't wait until the new year to start oh. making. Out, like, frankly, I, know what this is. I can't believe you said this out this loud. Is. You said it out loud, mm. didn't you? You made quite an can, outrageous claim because this is not easy. Can I, we just mm. go well, on? Can I just say this was after we'd recorded the pod, but but the sneaky producer Alex kept recording, and and captured this moment, and I. Come on then, let's listen to it. I think we should. You catch me on page 1100 out of 1400 of War and Peace. Even though I haven't quite got to the end, I can already say it's the best book I've ever read. People I know who've read it, and it's my Everest, it's sitting there, I need to crack on with it. Because one day I'm going to die and I need to read War and Peace. And the problem I've got is that apparently it's impossible to remember who is who? Have you got a system? The version I have has a really simple character list at the end. And there are essentially only eight or ten characters that con- you meet constantly. Uh-huh. So, you know, if it's a, a Russian general, I kind of vaguely note his name. But as a personality, I know he's not going to be somebody that I'm getting, going to get involved with his emotional life, for example. Right. Whereas Pierre and Andre and Natasha and Sonia and Hélène, you know, you do, don't let that put you off. And I, I put a, the page with the character list, I just put a little kind of postcard in there. So I'm, at the beginning, I referred to it quite regularly. Who's that? Mm. Who's related? But it, it sort of boils down, as you read it, to actually very few people in the book that you desperately care about. And I so recommend it. I've been dreading it. And then I picked it up and I first page in, I couldn't put it down. There you go. So I should have said, sorry, that's Victoria Hislop, who this year uh, released One August Night. Fantastic book. Brilliant writer. Um, I think we cut it off a little bit early there, though, didn't we? Because what was the result of <sighs> no, of that conversation? What was no, your? I think we just left. What it was your? We, so moving on. We, no, I think we did. <laughs> I think we did because you have decided I, that I, uh, yeah, you're going to read it on. You're going to give it a go. I said I'm going to read it. She recommended the best translation. It's all about the translation for these books because the one that was doing yeah. the rounds was from about 1950, uh, which was really old-fashioned English, very stilted, very literal translation, hard to read, not much fun to read. And when you're reading War and Peace, which is the size of you know a s- small saloon 
um, you, you need <laughs> you need it to be written in, in accessible English. So there is a translation by Anthony Briggs. And so this is the translation she recommended, the Anthony Briggs translation of War and Peace. I downloaded it on my Kindle. I've got an update for you, Emma. And I was doing this weekly yeah. on my weekend breakfast show. I was keeping the listeners well updated on how I was getting on. I've had a I've, I've had a pause. I've taken a pause. Right, I'm enjoying it, but I've taken. A pause. Yeah, is that? Are you? Is it just a pause? Are you no, sure? No, 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 no. I'm, I'm going to go back to it. I'm on twenty three percent. Okay, uh, right. So that's what are you? You're a fifth the way through. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, so I've, that's I've read, you know, Effectively, well I've read about sixteen thousand pages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And is it? <laughs> Let's stick with the percentage. <laughs> it's more believable. And are you finding it? Is it a companion? Yeah, it's good. Is it? Is it absolutely? Yeah. You can't put it down. I read. I last read at Tolstoy at university. I read Anna Karenina, and I loved that. But that was uh, twenty years ago. So um, I haven't read any Tolstoy for that long, and I really am enjoying it. It's beautifully written. It's just. It's incredible to think how modern it feels, and that's partly translation, but also partly Tolstoy being light years ahead of his time, writing deep emotional proper character depth and stuff happening and wonderful i mean the action sequences are brilliant you're going to be impossible after you've read it you will yeah. you are going to be impossible uh, i mean after i'm pretty read tricky it. now gonna, we're honest, gonna have to buy you a, yeah. yeah you are we're gonna to have to buy you a badge or something just go well done tom well done yes. well done yes, i'm gonna well want done. a badge in 2021 <laughs> i want a badge that says i've been vaccinated <laughs> and i want a badge that says i've read war and peace thank you <laughs> There you go. Now, uh, talking war and peace, I know we touched on this during our last podcast, uh, but it was, uh, this is is a very big moment of this year. It took up, it's taken up a lot of energy and emotion, um, uh, rightly so, and interest. But the Black Lives Matter movement um, was, was an incredible source of thinking and language and people uh, writing and saying things that that should have been and you know should have been said many many years ago and um, lots of emotional outpouring um, that just captured most of the world's yeah. imagination and attention in the way it absolutely should do we had um, uh, we, we had a, a fantastic chance to speak to several people who brought that up Candice Brathwaite um, who wrote a book about being a young black mother in the UK which was a ve- like a really no holds barred account of what she felt like uh, being um, and her experience within the hospital system and the medical system she's brutal mm. absolutely brutal yeah. and you know when you read something you go this is a country that i live it's in extraordinary. it's extraordinary it's, in- it's extraordinary it's extraordinary and um it, i was i've you know like many people and i don't you know i don't want to kind of you know, take this uh you know too far but i just you know i really really the whole thing has re- made me stop massively um and completely reconsider where we were and that was um that was absolutely most astutely felt when we spoke to Ibi Zaboy and Dr. Yusuf Salam um, about their book Punching the Air. Um, uh, we had them on the we had them on the podcast. If you if you don't know Ibi Zaboy, fantastic young adult author already, and Dr. Yusuf um, Salam was one of the now exonerated five, one of the Central Park Five, and to be able to speak to him in person about this book and his experience was incredible. And, you know, Tom, what was so um, fantastic about this book as well, it's a young adult book um, and Edie, you know, Edie Pops, my 17-year-old, um, she obviously has been absorbing a lot of this uh, information on the news and around her and with her school friends and stuff. Um, and she was watching the Netflix series When They See Us, where, yes. which is based on the story of the Central Park Five. Yeah. And, uh, you know, again and again and again, she came in and sat with me and was just 
sort of so rocked yeah. by the fact that things like this can happen in her lifetime. Um, and she read the book and she basically t- took it to school. Um, and I think they've organised to, to speak to Ibi at some point and whatever Amazing. because she was just so motivated by it. Um, and this is this is a little bit where he talks um, about uh, his advice for any young people wanting to change the world. You know, one of the biggest things I always remember is that someone used their privilege in the past to help me. And it's our job to use our privilege to help others. We don't necessarily have to be in America to be able to really reach out and uplift and, and you know, add truth, speak truth to power. But I think anywhere we are, anytime we see an injustice, we have to speak out against it. You know, I come from a faith that says that if you see a wrong, you should change it. And you can change it in one of three ways, whether you speak out against it or you change it with with something physical, like you can stop somebody from doing something bad or you can hate it at least within your heart. And I think that that's the that's the important part, because a lot of times when you think about what we're responding to, we are responding to the humanity in others. And sometimes we see others and they're they're completely over like trampling over our human rights, trampling over our civil rights, completely oblivious to it all. But once we see people for people, see people for who they are and truly what they need to be, then we, we, we have this awesome opportunity to allow them to exist. And it's about coexisting. It's about, you know, psychosocially, everyone matters. And, and as we begin to teach people and tell people that they are valuable, then they begin to add value. That's one of the reasons why in Punching the Air, we chose so many different examples, whether that, been, whether that was through the teacher, Miss Rinaldi, whether mm-hmm. that was through the prison officer, whether that was through even the persons in the prison that befriended Amal, you know? There's all of these opportunities of, of expression that you can see yourself in and figure out, well, this is a book of fiction, but we also know that it is based on my story. And we know that because it's based on my story, there is some truth that some people somewhere have gone through something like this. We have now the opportunity to choose better, to choose different. Especially as a teacher, we don't have to take a child that's in front of us and recreate them in our minds to make them into what we want them to be. We have the opportunity to say, hey, who is this child? What can we do to make this child the best child, the best caretaker of tomorrow by doing what we have to do today? I still, honestly, I feel like quite like I had to go and have a little cry after I spoke to him, mm. and I'm still feeling quite emotional about it again because you, you know, to have the opportunity to speak to somebody who went through what they did. There's, um, you know, a great mind, a young boy who went to jail for something that they didn't do for 13 years, right. um, and you know, and we know that Trump was at the forefront of calling for the death penalty for them. Right. Um, you know, and that happened in our lifetime. It's it's recent times. Yeah. Um, and for him to kind of come forward with such a positive book. Such clarity. Of, you know, such such clarity. Such, such clarity. Purpose, yeah. You know, all these yeah. all these things yeah. we have to listen to. And it's interesting you were saying about Edie, you know, your child reading this stuff and People talk a lot about uh, kids reading this and how to how we tell our kids and how we educate our kids, and that's obviously absolutely maximum importance. But the other thing that we need to do is get in touch. And this sounds really mad, but get in touch with our 
inner child and educate ourselves and remember that we are all still learning about this stuff and watching the BLM stuff evolve this year and and reading these books and hearing these voices you know you need to challenge yourself you need to you need to look at yourself and you need to shut up and listen certainly if you are like we both are white people living with tremendous privilege and uh, this year has been Mm -hmm. a very big moment for that if that if that book doesn't end up on a curriculum somewhere mm. at some point i'll eat my hat mm. well um, i can bake yeah. you a hat if it's you like a, it, you see my baking it's <laughs> absolutely top drawer just let me know honeycomb hat yes please <laughs> yes please yes please <laughs> so uh yeah i mean listen here's to a 2021 that's filled with um great literature brilliant stories lots of lots of love lots of education and good vibes all around i've got a good feeling about next year tom i think so as long as it's a little bit less pandemic-y that would just be lovely (laughs) nice wouldn't it (laughs) Uh, until then happy new year and as always yes happy happy reading. reading